Welcome to the Independent Writers Podcast. We made it to episode one. With each episode, we hope to get better and better at this whole podcasting thing. For today, we are so excited to share our incredibly talented featured writers with you. On this episode, we have First Star by Ryler Dustin, The Short History of Instant Noodles by Hani Kusumawadi, and Pickle by Trent Lewin. As a reminder, there will be links to each writer's websites in our show notes, as well as on our social media pages. Let's get started. First Star by Ryler Dustin. It is here, in the empty lot across from Kmart, dusk on the cusp of summer, that you realize you love her. She has asked you to teach her to drive. You lied about having a license, and your mother's metro is not cut out for this. Now she kills the clutch again and again as you brace your bodies against the dash, laughing. You are not cut out for it either. How she cracks jokes with the boys at your lunch table. Eyes huge, hair black as volcanic glass. You cannot hold on your tongue the name of the place she is from in Nicaragua. Or the ache the fact of her body makes in yours, no matter what you do even when you are making love behind her mother's leaky apartment or lying in the damp grass after, watching geese sign their mysterious arrow overhead. Soon your best friend, Jealous, will stop sitting at the lunch table. Her father will vanish again. Her mother remarry and take her to Georgia. On the phone, she'll tell you about a psychiatrist. Pills she started, some good, some bad, and a man she met at church her voice disappearing into the sound of traffic. But blink now, and you're back in the parking lot. Blink, and you're in the brimming grass, wet, watching the geese neck ever on. Tell her again they have needles in their noses, like compasses, guiding them to where they must go. Say you can see Sirius, the first star, though you know she is already sleeping, like something crash-landed, unfathomable, from an even deeper distance. Her breasts below the coat you both share, her wrists so defenseless that the world for the first time frightens you, and you begin in that light to know what it is. Ryler Dustin's poetry appears in places such as the Southern Review, Iron Horse, and Red Sky, Poetry on the Global Epidemic of Violence Against Women. He holds an MFA from the University of Houston and is a PhD candidate at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He has performed on the final stage of the individual World Poetry Slam, and his book, Heavy Lead Birdsong, is available from Right Bloody Publishing. You can contact him via his website, rylerdustin.com. The Short History of Instant Noodles by Hani Kusumawati Whenever it was raining outside, my mind always went to instant noodles. A bowl of steaming comfort topped with egg and fried shallots, drenched in my favorite savory soup. When I was a little girl, this meant chicken curry or a special chicken flavor. 
Of course, later on, Instant Noodle brands came up with all kinds of flavors you could ever imagine. But as always, nothing beats the classics. It's all about the signature taste that brings you back to reminisce the old days from the very first sip, to feast on memories, to slurp on nostalgia, to savor a feeling of going back in time. There was a certain period in my life when my mother and I moved to stay with my mother's parents. Every evening after the call for Maghrib prayer, my grandmother would prepare a bowl of instant noodles for my father. For grandfather, it was always the chicken curry flavor, and he wanted the noodles to be extra soft. His should be topped with egg, fried shallots, boiled mustard greens, and sweet soy sauce, served inside a white Chinese bowl with a red chicken painted on it. Grandfather always had his bowls of instant noodles exactly like that, every single evening at the same time. He would be having it in front of the TV set in the living room while watching the evening news or a soccer match. Before bringing the spoon to his mouth, he always asked me the exact same question. You want this? This is delicious. You want this? I would shake my head and look at him as he savored his instant noodles with gusto, slurping the savory soup noisily. Sometimes a splinter of boiled egg yolk was still stuck on his long white beard, even long after he had finished. When in very rare occasions grandmother made me a bowl of instant noodles, she would prepare it the way she prepared it for grandfather. I didn't like the mustard greens back then, but I liked the way the two soft noodles made the soup seem way thicker, the way they absorbed the full flavor from the seasonings. No one could prepare the perfect instant noodles for grandfather but grandmother. My mother was a good cook, but even she couldn't emulate grandmother's signature bowl of instant noodles. Grandmother also knew the way grandfather liked his sweet hot tea, the precise thickness of tea and sugar, as well as the precise level of warmth and when it should be served. Grandmother prepared instant noodles for grandfather every single evening until one day she fell sick. She passed away a month later. After grandmother's death, Grandfather still had his bowl of instant noodles every evening, the one prepared by my mother. He no longer asked me questions about whether I'd like to have the noodles or not, and I suddenly lost interest in watching him finishing his instant noodles. Maybe I was bored. Maybe I was simply growing up. Maybe the sight of Grandfather eating his instant noodles had stopped to excite me. But I thought it was because something was missing. The gusto. A year after that, Grandfather passed away. As far as I could remember, I had never seen Grandfather served anything for Grandmother. I am always curious at the fact that a bowl of instant noodles can develop its own signature taste. The noodles came in identical packagings, with identical seasonings, and identical instructions on how to prepare and serve them. Nonetheless, I have heard of people lining up in front of certain instant noodle street stalls because the noodles here are so delicious. I thought this would be something Grandfather would understand. Maybe he would line up in front of an instant noodle stall that served one with Grandmother's style. In Java, instant noodle stalls can be found almost in every corner of the street. Many stay open until the small hours. One should only look for street stalls carrying the word Internet. A friend who visited from abroad pointed at those stalls one day and asked me whether those were street-style Internet cafes. I told him that it was a different kind of Internet. This internet stands for Indomie Tellier Cornet, instant noodle egg and corned beef. It's a bowl of comfort food for most Indonesians, as well as for clubbers who roam the streets hungrily after partying hard, 
trying to prevent hangovers. Another friend of mine would enthusiastically vouch for an instant noodle stall in another part of town. It would take her 45 minutes to get there by car, an hour and a half if there was a traffic jam. But she would brave it all. She said that this stall served the most delicious bowl of instant noodles she had ever tasted. Probably it was the way they prepared the noodle. About how long they boil it. Whether they stir it or not. About having it really soft or really chewy. About whether they put the seasonings into the pan or into the bowl. The kind of eggs they use. The amount of chili they put in it. On whether they sprinkle fried shallots or not. The brand of the corned beef on whether they boil the corned beef or serve it right away from the can, on whether they put in green vegetables or not, on whether they grate the cheese before or after the noodle is ready, on whether they add some salt or chicken stocks. Or maybe, delicious has nothing much to do with the taste itself. Maybe it has more to do with the memories. We moved out from my grandparents' house into a rented one when I was 10. The house itself was really small. The kitchen was oddly located right in front of the bathroom, but it had a huge backyard. Seeing it as a little girl, I imagined a huge swimming pool, but my mother realistically decided to grow peanuts. I didn't know why she chose peanuts, but after spending a few hours under the sun in the backyard for a few months, she managed to grow 10 to 12 rows of peanuts there. I didn't get my swimming pool, but my mother bought me a huge plastic bucket. On sunny days, she would fill it with cold water, I would soak myself happily, wearing my swimsuit and playing with a yellow rubber duck while my mother worked on her peanuts. During harvest time, we always had more than we could consume, and my swimming bucket would be filled with peanuts. My mother would boil several batches of peanuts for hours. I could smell them from the street. We would eat some of them, but ended up giving away most of them to our neighbors. My mother also made peanut cookies and peanut butter. We kept those for ourselves. When there were simply too much peanuts to handle, my mother would leave the peanut-filled swimming bucket outside our fence so anyone could grab some. However, peanuts were meant for sunny days. For rainy days, we had instant noodles. My mother always scolded me for forgetting my umbrella, or for losing it. On some wet afternoons, when it rained heavily and I came home with a soaked uniform, my mother would scold me for not having my umbrella, while, at the same time, preparing a bucket of warm water for a bath. Then she would send me to the bathroom and reminded me to wash my hair so I wouldn't catch a cold. When I finished, my mother would have prepared my rainy day meal on the dining table, a plate of warm rice with a bowl of steaming hot instant noodles and some eggs, fried with margarine and sweet soy sauce. A glass of sweet hot tea would have been ready on the side. At this stage, my mother would have stopped scolding me about the umbrella she would tell me the stories of her days or ask me to tell some stories of my days. My mother could cook anything from rendang to gulai to gudeg to siomay, and they were always delicious. But nothing reminded me more of the comfort of coming home than the signature smell of her simple rainy day meal. A warm plate of rice, a steaming hot instant noodle, egg fried with margarine and sweet soy sauce, and sweet hot tea. That was the best set of meal one could ever have after a long, tiring, and challenging day away from home. It was the smell I came home to, the taste of warmth I came to long for. For the sake of living a healthier lifestyle in the last few years, I had drastically reduced my frequency of consuming instant noodles. 
However, every time I came home from a long traveling journey, I still treated myself to a bowl of chicken curry or special chicken and fried myself an egg and margarine drizzled with sweet soy sauce. Because if coming home had a taste, to me, it would taste just like that. Hani Kusumawati is based in Indonesia. She is a writer and managing editor of a user-generated content website on wellness and mindful living. She also facilitates workshops and trainings related to writing and creative content. She enjoys teaching, building communities, and producing meaningful content. You can discover more of Hani's work at her WordPress blog, Baradadasini. Pickle by Trent Lewin. Anne wasn't hit by a bus. She was standing still, staring at a painting she didn't give a shit about, when her eyes glazed and she dropped her purse. It took Dawn five minutes to realize that something was wrong, to remember that Anne didn't care about paintings or museums. Anne only really cared about the baby growing inside her. That evening, Dawn had been in the hospital with Uncle Charlie, the sole member of Anne's family that had medical training. It's probably nothing, he said, sipping a coffee. Paramedics wheeled in a stretcher with an old lady on it. Dawn tried to spy her face and wondered why they weren't moving faster. Shouldn't they be moving faster? It's probably nothing, said Uncle Charlie. Another sip. An hour later, the doctor came. Hypovolemia. A sudden loss of blood. He said something about salt, to which Don said that he thought salt was a bad thing. Only if you have too much. If you have too little, that's also bad, the doctor said. Next to him, Uncle Charlie nodded sagely, as if to say, this is true, but it's probably nothing. That night, Don slept on a plastic chair. The next morning, the doctor came back. She's in a coma. Yes, it's serious. No, we don't know about the baby, but we're checking. Pickle. Anne was sleeping, but it was a strange type of sleep, and she felt that she was snoring loudly, but it was hard to tell. Her mind flitted to the baby. It was the only part of her body that she could feel. Am I drunk? she asked. No reply. The baby, it seemed, could not yet diagnose her sobriety. Kids she snorted. But really, there was no snort. Two months ago, she'd walked to the back porch and found the gazebo draped with curtains. That had been odd, but then she'd walked inside to find Christmas lights everywhere. On the floor were mattresses and pillows, and a naked dawn. No way, she said, but that hadn't prevented her from losing her clothes. There they'd fumbled, a sheet of vinyl separating them from the outside world, and the neighbors locally dwelling within it. Pickle, Don say, to get a laugh. We'll call him Pickle. Anne had jumped on top of him to tell him what she thought about that. For Don, it had been mission accomplished, his wife bouncing up and down with the furious, laughing conviction that their third child would never, ever be called Pickle. 
Don read to her. He'd started with news guards, a death in the family, which he'd heard was genius because it used cute kid phrases. He'd stopped after 50 pages because genius what? Plus the relevance of the title to his current predicament had come crashing down on him in the open mouth stare of a nurse who'd glimpsed what he was reading. Uncle Charlie sat in the corner with it now. Don was reciting the big honey hunt because the doctors had assured him that Anne's mental activities were suspended. She was able to breathe, and her bodily functions proceeded with help from hospital instrumentation. But the rest was done, so he might as well read a kid's book. He picked a classic. This is terrible, said Uncle Charlie, dropping Newsguard. Can I read one of yours? He picked up Fox and Socks and smiled. Todd and Rain came in. She move? Todd asked. She can't, said Dawn. Could happen, though, noted Rain, snuggling next to her mother. There's a statistical chance. Come on, Mom, added Todd. You bought lottery tickets, and those odds were shit. It's not like you didn't think you could win. He took a picture of Rain on the bed. Look at this, he said, handing the phone to his dad. On the screen, Rain's was almost like a second head under Anne's. Some kind of adorable mutant creature made of bed sheets and gown linen. Rain's eyes were open, and in the flash from the phone, it looked like Anne's were too. It was undefined, the amount of time it took for Anne to understand what had happened. You can only go so long without consciously going for a poop, she reasoned. Or eating. Most of all, she missed eating. There was something about chewing on food that made you feel human. And in her present condition, she was unsure of where she stood on the humanity scale. Low, she estimated. Very low. Force your eyes open, she became fond of telling herself. She said it in three languages that she could claim to know. And after that, in new languages, she made up, creating grammar and vocabulary on the spot until she was fluent. This is Dawn's fault, she surmised. Some kind of ultra-aggressive pregnancy. Words came in eight different languages. She swore in twelve. Deeper inside, the baby was with her. A little boy. She could hear his thoughts. He was doing okay. Not great, but okay. He didn't seem to be growing fast. Don't worry about that, she told him. Don't you worry at all. I'll take care of this. And so she did. You've never looked thinner, Don said to Anne. Ninety pounds. I think you overshot your goal, though. He kept his voice down so the nurses wouldn't hear. They were preparing to move her to the birthing unit. Anne's belly was remarkable, shooting out of her diminished body like a pyramid. This is it, he said. The books were gone. Even Uncle Charlie was gone. First kid by C-section. I'm sorry about that. And no breastfeeding this time, I guess. He thought back to the two-plus years that Todd and Rain had breastfed. Anne had even managed it in the back seat of the car, stretching to the limit of the seatbelt to pop a nipple into a waiting mouth. She had been the best. You're the best, he said. And now you're going to do it again. The nurses asked that he step out of the way. Figure you can't hear me, love. The nurse stared. Wanted you to know that I'm getting a car big enough for three kids. And a diaper service. And pretty sure that I'm not going to remarry. The same nurse made a sound. The rest huddled around the stretcher. 
He pulled it towards the door. Dawn followed. Anne felt sluggish, even for her. She'd been building a house in her head. Not a big one, just enough for a family of five. She'd made a layout, placed the windows, picked paint colors and carpet. It was small but cute. Plain but sturdy, just like her, she thought. Just like her. She was moving. Or not. She was in a brighter place, maybe. Weren't those hands on her body? And wasn't that a voice? Maybe Dawn's? Open your eyes, she told herself. Open your eyes. Something pricked her. At once she leapt inside and found her baby. Baby of no name. Baby still too small, but doing just fine. It's okay, she laughed, then curled around the child like a snake. I've got this. And then something tore into her. A tremendous volcano of something that made her constrict around the little life form. For a moment she saw herself. How small she'd become. Somehow she'd gotten smaller as her baby had grown. As if they were growing towards each other. As though they were eventually going to be the same somehow. As the tearing increased, she squeezed. I've got this. She laughed for the little boy. I do. Don sat on the bed, baby in his arms. His wife's eyes were closed. The wires and tubes that had kept her alive were to the side, like a sagging tree that hadn't been watered. I knew you could do it, he said to her. Have to say, this one looks like me. Or Uncle Charlie. Take your pick. He's the heaviest baby we've had. Didn't see that coming. Baby made a sound. Anne was sleeping, it seemed. Her hair was in curls and her mouth open on the pillow. In three months, she would have been 36. In 30 years, she would have been a grandmother. Don put baby next to her. I know you're wondering, he said, taking a breath. I know you want to know if I picked a name. Well, I did, and I think you'll like it. He leaned over and whispered it into her ear. As he did, Baby raised a hand and brushed his whiskers. The gesture seemed to say, Hey, Dad, don't worry. I know this one's tough, and I don't have much to offer you just yet. But we got this. Really, we do. Don looked at the little life form that was touching him. Yeah, I know, he said. And for a moment, felt strange for talking like that to a baby. But the moment passed, as all moments did, and this one in particular so quickly that he barely remembered it having happened at all. Trent Lewin is a Canadian writer who works on short and long fiction. He has been shortlisted for writing competitions and is currently completing a novel. His work can be found at TrentLewin.com. Remember to check the show notes for links to our writers' websites and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This has been the Independent Writers Podcast. Thank you for listening. Keep writing, keep sharing, keep growing.